Please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in Luke's Gospel to chapter 22. We're going to read uh, chapter 22, verse 63 uh, through 23, verse 25 uh, this morning. But just to get us started, I'm just going to read uh, the end of chapter 22. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that uh, starting on page 883. Luke 22, 63 through 71. Beloved congregation, this is our God's word to us this morning. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they answered, What further testimony do we need? You have, we have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And so ends the reading of our God's word at this time. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Our gracious Father, you know our hearts, you know our minds. You know how we struggle to believe your words of comfort. How we are quicker to believe the enemy's lies lies than your truth. If we're honest, your grace sometimes sounds foreign to our selfishness. It sounds outside and beyond the realm of possible. Your word is too good to be true. So help us not to judge you as if we were the standard. Help us to judge our doubts according to your word. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to just how high and inexhaustible your grace truly is. Do this as we meet you in your word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. statements in the Bible that's just glorious is what we hear in 1 John. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That theme of of being adopted into God's family repeats in one way or another through all of Scripture. And it's beautiful. the Bible teaches that, that Christians, as Christians, we aren't just uh, followers of the true God, though we are that, but that we are his family, that we are his children. And so, so Hebrews tells us Jesus isn't ashamed to call us siblings. Uh, the Spirit, we, we read in Romans 8, teaches us to pray to God as Father. And obviously, I hope that reality 
uh, betrays and demonstrates to us just how much our God loves us. But there's more. Because it's not just a term of endearment, a family term. It also means that we are heirs of God. Uh, To be designated as his children uh, tells us something about our future, that we are heirs of heaven, that what belongs to him belongs to us and awaits us. But we have to ask that question. How do sinners (laughs) that deserve hell end up inheriting heaven? It doesn't make sense. And that's the great question. And our passage this morning has the answer. Uh, So last week we looked at at Jesus as he was betrayed uh, and abandoned by those closest to him, his disciples. And and this week we're going to turn to his trial or trials uh, before religious leaders and civil leaders. And through this we're going to see three things about Jesus. The first is that he is God. His deity, the fact that he is God is made clear in the passage before us. Second, we're going to see that he is righteous. He is the righteous God in whom is found no guilt, no sin. And finally, we're going to see that he is sacrificial and loving. That he is the God who saves his people that calls his people to himself, adopting them as his children. And so that's what we're going to see uh, this morning. And and all of that requires a response, because while all people are sinners, not all people find salvation. While we all need mercy, we don't all find mercy. And so really what I want to look at from our passage as we look at uh, these these sections together is something, the main point is something like this. To be a child of God means acknowledging that though he is the righteous God, Jesus suffered in our place on the cross. Though he is the righteous, sinless, perfect God, he suffered in our place on the cross. That's what I want to look at from our passage this morning. We uh, saw last week that having been betrayed by Judas, Jesus was uh, then arrested and he was led away. And what we see in our our passage this morning, what we've already read and we'll be reading in just minutes, is actually three stages of a trial or possibly even three different trials. Uh, The first stage is before the religious leaders of Israel. Uh, They mocked him. They beat him. They even made sport of it. They blindfolded him, challenging him to prophesy who was it that struck him. And and this really gets at the heart of the religious leaders' concerns. And their big concern is that Jesus claims to be the Christ. We we call Jesus Jesus Christ, and that's not his last name. It doesn't mean, oh, the Christ family down the street. Uh, Christ is a title, and it means the Messiah, the anointed one. And... uh, The Messiah was long prophesied in in the Old Testament as the one who would come to Israel and and bring salvation. Twice at his birth, Jesus was called the Christ. The demons confessed him to be the Christ. Peter famously confessed him to be the Christ. But most importantly is that Jesus himself claimed to be the Christ in chapter 20. 
And many of the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah indicated that, that the Messiah would actually be God himself come to his people. And these people understand that. And so they see in his claim to be the Christ a claim to be God. And they say in verse 70, are you the son of God then? And that's, that's compounded by Jesus' claim to the title Son of Man, which comes from Daniel. And, and Jesus has used this title many times. And it's a title given in Daniel to the Eternal One who comes to set all things right. He rules all peoples and he receives an eternal kingdom. And this is who Jesus is claiming to be. And everyone there gets it. And so it's really truly amazing how many people wonder if Jesus ever claimed to be God because he did so in so many ways but, but most importantly we, we, we need to make no mistake about this this is what he's on trial for he's on trial for blasphemy for speaking against God by claiming to be God if, if he didn't want to claim to be God, it would have been so easy to just say, whoa, been a mistake here. But it's only blasphemy if he isn't God. It's only sinful if it isn't true. But, but it doesn't really matter to the people because they don't stop to ask if Jesus is actually the Messiah. If he really is the son of man, if he really is the son of God. They don't actually look for the evidence because they don't care about the truth. And so they assault him and they attack him. And did you see what what these attacks are called in verse 65? Blasphemy. Their attacks on him are blasphemy because they're attacks on God. They're guilty of the very thing they accuse him of. And in in their denial of Jesus, they fall victim of the very sin they claim to find in him. The testimony is clear. Jesus is God. He, He is God become man. That's who he is. This this first section that we've read, that's what becomes clear. That the the one who stands on trial is none other than God himself. But the question is, what kind of God is he? And that's what the next two sections go on to answer. And the first answer comes in, in chapter 23, verses 1 through 16. And so let me read that. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, is is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. 
When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. They arrayed him in splendid clothing. He sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. So the religious leaders took Jesus and they delivered him over to Pilate, the governor of Judea. Uh, he's, that, he's the Roman representative in the region. And as such, uh, he would not care much about a religious dispute among the Jews. He wouldn't care about Jesus' claims to be the Christ, the Son of God, or the Son of Man. And, and his accusers know this. And so they had to come up with some other charge if they were going to pull Pilate into uh, their argument. And so their goal is to see Jesus put to death. And so they, they, they're going to have to convince Pilate that Jesus has done something worthy of the death penalty. And so they settle on insurrection. They accuse Jesus of stirring up the people uh, in rebellion against Rome and forbidding them to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, of course, we know this isn't true because we saw in chapter 20 when they tried to catch Jesus on this, he didn't take their bait and said, no, go ahead and pay taxes. We, we, we know that their, their accusations of trying to overthrow Caesar have never been attempted. Just last week we saw these Roman guards before Jesus and when one of his disciples drew a sword against the Roman uh, soldiers, Jesus healed uh, the, the servant that was um, hit. Jesus is anything but an insurrectionist. But have you ever noticed how facts don't really matter when you hate someone? And so they lied. And it's Pilate's responsibility now to look into the matter. Because it's a serious accusation. And so he asked Jesus about it. And and then he sent Jesus to Herod, the regional ruler of Jesus' hometown. Now, Herod has been trying to see Jesus for a long time. We saw that several chapters back, hoping to see some sign or wonder, but he was disappointed because the time for signs and wonders has passed. And so Jesus just remains silent as Isaiah prophesied he would. And between the two men, between Pilate and Herod, they could not find one crime to punish. And so three times, three times... They declared him to be guiltless. Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus' closest friend denied him three times. And yet here we find complete strangers declaring him innocent three times. 
But the people weren't deterred. Uh, despite the Bible's warnings about perverting justice, they continue to accuse him of things he's never done. And so initially, Pilate and Herod decide to punish Jesus, even though they found no guilt in him. And yes, you heard that right. They, they found him innocent, and then said, let's punish him. If that sounds odd, it's because it is. You, you don't punish the innocent. It's a complete denial of justice. And that means that Jesus hasn't just been abandoned by his friends. He hasn't just been abandoned by the people of Israel and the religious leaders. He hasn't just been abandoned by the the, the Roman leaders. But he's now been abandoned by justice itself. Over the centuries, there's been a lot of discussion about who's to blame for the death of Jesus. Many have laid it at the feet of the Jews. And such claims have been used to promote anti-Semitism over the years. And to be sure, there were many Jews complicit that day. Our passage makes that clear. But my question is this. Who wasn't complicit that day? Who's running to his aid? Who's standing up for him? Who comes to his rescue? No one. Everyone is complicit. Everyone is to blame. Someone totally innocent, totally righteous, stood trial for crimes he did not commit, and not one person stood up for him in any real way. Everyone knew he was innocent. The religious leaders knew it, and they lied. The civil leaders knew it, and they decided to punish him. So why? Why punish an innocent man? They did it to appease the people. They did it because it was expedient. They did it so that they wouldn't have to make an uncomfortable stand for the truth and what is right. But the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is not just God. He is the righteous God in whom there is no sin, no guilt, no wrongdoing. That's who he is. He's being punished though he is without sin. Pilate has one trick up his sleeve. The Roman leaders had this custom, uh, each Passover, to release uh, one prisoner. And so he offers to let Jesus go according to this custom. So let's pick up in verse 18 and read through verse 25. But they all cried, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! And a third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. 
But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Instead of allowing Pilate to release Jesus, they demanded the release of a man named Barabbas. And before we get into why Barabbas was in prison, we have to marvel at his name. Barabbas, or Bar-Abbas, literally means son of the father. The very thing that Jesus claimed to be, the very thing that got him into trouble to begin with. In fact, there are some historical accounts that, that suggest that his first name in Hebrew would have been Joshua, in Greek, Jesus, that his name was actually Jesus, son of the father. You can't help but see the irony. You have two claiming to be Jesus, the son of the father. But the irony goes deeper because Barabbas is in prison for, yep, you guessed it, insurrection, the very thing that they have accused Jesus of doing. He's been trying to overthrow the Roman government. He's been stirring up the people into rebellion. He believed that the, that the hope of God's people would be found in the sword. And that conviction even led him to take life. And so now he's in, for, he's in prison for insurrection and for murder. Capital crimes. Punishable by the death penalty. Everyone knows who Barabbas is, what he's been doing, and why he's in prison. But they demand his release. And in demanding his release, they, they prove that they don't care about insurrection. They prove that their charges are really just a smokescreen for what's really going on. They hate Jesus and they want him dead and that's why they're there. But meanwhile, what has Jesus been doing the whole time? While he's been abandoned and while he's been mocked and he's been beaten and falsely accused and interrogated... That whole time he's giving minimal responses which really amount to no response at all. Verse 9 even says he gave no answer. Before his accusers he stands silent. I mentioned earlier that Isaiah prophesied that that would be the case. But there's more to it than that. It's not just how the scriptures prophesied the Messiah would behave. It's how the scriptures record our God behaving. When Adam blamed God for his sin because of the wife he gave him, God stood silent before his accuser. When Naomi blamed God for the death of her husband and her children and her situation in life, when she sought refuge and care among Israel's enemies, God stood silent before his accuser. He's done it time and time again. There are times he doesn't stand silent. But when he does, it's because he intends to show mercy. It's because he intends to endure so that others don't have to. And so what we find is that Jesus isn't just God. 
He isn't just the righteous God in whom there is no sin, no guilt, no wrongdoing. But he is also the sacrificial and loving God who saves a people for himself by adopting them as his children. And that final truth is brought home in this episode with Barabbas. Barabbas, the murderer, is set free. And Jesus, the innocent one, is sent to die. Jesus, though though guiltless, dies in Barabbas' place. But it's not just Barabbas. I mean, one could argue that, that Barabbas is the one who put Jesus on the cross. Or they could argue that it's the Jews. Or you could argue that it's the Roman leaders. But the simple reality is I put him there. And so did you. That's the gospel message. Because Jesus died in our place. He died as our substitute. This is why he had to be God, and it's why he had to be righteous. The value of the substitute has to be at least as valuable as the one he replaces. No mere bull or or goat or any other animal could pay the debt a human owes. A human who's made in the image of God. Because it's not valuable enough. No mere human could do it. Because we're all sinful. And that's why God himself had to become man. That's why he had to live a perfect life. So that he could be the substitute and suffer in our place. And he endured what we deserve so that we might receive what he deserves as the son of God. We don't know whether Barabbas ever believed in Jesus. But his story is a visible picture of the gospel message. A sinner spared and called son of the father because Jesus did what no man could do for himself. Jesus did for us what was necessary so that we might be called children of the Father and heirs of heaven. In other words, we're meant to see ourselves in Barabbas. Sinners condemned to death, but spared through the death of Jesus. And it's only those who confess that it was their sin that put Jesus on the cross that finds salvation. To be a child of God means acknowledging that that though he is the righteous God, that Jesus suffered in our place on the cross. And those who acknowledge this, they find in Jesus Christ a a righteous God who who is sacrificial for those he loves and able to save all who call upon him in faith. So much rest on Jesus' willingness to suffer on the cross. So much rest on it. And perhaps that's why God keeps it central in all we do as his children. And so it's fitting that we would end our time in our Father's word at our Father's table where we witness the sacrifice of his Son on our behalf.
Because in the bread and the wine, we have a visible reminder of Jesus' death on the cross. Innocent, righteous, guiltless, and yet punished as a murderer so that we might be called children of God. And so we come to this table as forgiven sinners. We come to this this table as children of God. We come to this table as heirs of heaven. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward this morning that we might receive this. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can be called your children, all because of what your son did for us. We thank you that he is God, that he is the righteous God without guilt, without sin, and that he is a sacrificial and loving God who has suffered what we deserve so that we might be called children of God and if children, then heirs. Help us to live in this world as is fitting for your children, knowing that we represent you as your family. We pray this all through Christ our Savior, our older brother, the King of heaven. Amen.